All right. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, if you're visiting from out of town or you're here for the holidays, uh, we're so glad you could join us for worship today. Um, I love that Christmas Eve this year falls on a Sunday uh, because I think it gives us uh, one last opportunity as a church uh, to take a collective breath uh, in the midst of this hectic, busy season uh, to pause and take in the magnitude of what the birth of Jesus means before we celebrate Christmas tomorrow. You know, this, this idea that some 2,000 years ago, the God who created the cosmos stepped into time and space to be with his people, to bring hope and healing to a weary world, to a world that was aching for a divine intervention. And perhaps this is where many of us are uh, today. On this last Sunday of Advent, maybe you're here this morning aching for God to show up in your life, for God to mend a broken heart, for God to restore a broken relationship, for God to revive an exhausted soul. And the good news of Christmas is that in our waiting, God always arrives at exactly the right time to give us exactly what we need. And so we're going to turn to God's word today. If you want to open up to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Um, if you're following along on a mobile device, uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV but it's also going to be on the screen behind me as well. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. This is the reading of God's word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we dive into God's word.
Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts on this Christmas Eve to receive what you would have for us today. We entrust this time and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, if you've been with us for the past few months, you know that our church uh, has been in a year-long series called Childlike Wonder, where we're working through all the stories in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a very well-known children's Bible, and we're doing this again as a way to help us recover a sense of childlike awe and curiosity in our pursuit of Jesus. And so today, as we revisit this very familiar Christmas story, like if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this probably preached um, every Christmas day, um, you know, for as long as you can remember. Uh, but I pray that we wouldn't tune out, but that we would come to this story with a sense of deep reverence and a sense of eager anticipation for how God may want to speak to us today. Now, uh, this morning, we're looking specifically at Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. And just so you know, uh, each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they're all telling us the same story of Jesus, but they're written to different audiences. So each, uh, each of these writers structure their Gospel in such a way that emphasizes different details about Jesus' life. And Matthew's Gospel is the most Jewish of the four Gospels, meaning it's specifically written to a Jewish audience. So if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to see a lot of references to the Hebrew Scriptures, a lot of references to the prophecies in the Old Testament, because Matthew understands that his readers are going to be familiar with these things, right? And the big overarching idea in Matthew's account is to highlight Jesus as Israel's true king, as the long-awaited Messiah spoken about in the prophecies of the Old Testament. And this is very important to note because I think sometimes when we come to the text as modern readers, it's very easy for us to skim past some of these details, uh, but we have to understand that the gospel writers were very intentional with every word, every phrase, every sentence in order to evoke a specific response in their readers. And the first verse we read in our text today says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now you read a line like that and you think, okay, they're just setting up the context, giving us the setting. But you have to understand, if you were an ancient Jewish reader and you read that line, your heart would stop. You see, your whole life you've studied the Hebrew scriptures and your mind would have immediately gone to Daniel chapter two. And let me paint the scene for you in Daniel. Daniel is an Israelite living in captivity. He's interpreting a dream for the king of Babylon at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar. And this king is frustrated because no matter how hard he tries, he can't seem to understand what this dream is about. And so he gathers the best and the brightest, the astrologers, the scientists, the magicians, wise men, also known as, guess who? The Magi, to come interpret this dream for him because no one's been able to do it. Right, so the scene in Daniel 2 is that you have God's people in exile, you have magi from the east, and you have a king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, in Matthew 2, you have God's people under Roman occupation, you have magi from the east, and you have a king, King Herod. Right, and if you go back to Daniel 2, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it's this picture of all these tyrannical kingdoms that are rising and falling and filling the world with violence and corruption and oppression. 
And Daniel says, in the midst of all of these different kingdoms, there's going to come a king, the true king, that's going to set up a kingdom that will never die. And his exact words are, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. In the days of those kings. And so imagine you're an ancient reader reading Matthew 2, over 500 years removed from this story, and you read the words, in the days of King Herod. Jesus was born. Matthew knows exactly what he's doing when he writes this. He's saying, you know that king that you've been hearing about, that over the generations you've talked about, that king you've been waiting for has been born today. Now, there are three questions I want to answer about this king as we dig into our text today. If you're taking notes, there are three points today. Where is the king? Who gets to see the king? And what happens in the king's presence? Okay, where is the king? Who gets to see the king? And what happens in the king's presence? First, where is the king? This is the central question that drives the Magi's pursuit. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And it makes sense that the Magi's first stop is Jerusalem, the capital city of the people of Israel, right? That's where the temple is. That's where King Herod's palace is. That's where the center of all religious activity and life is taking place. If you were God and you were coming to earth to take your rightful place on the throne as king, where would you go? Of course you would go to Jerusalem. Or let me contextualize this a little bit for us. Let's say you were invited to two birthday parties and you know that all the important popular people are going to be at one birthday party and all the, quote, nobodies, the people nobody knows, is going to be at the other birthday party. Which party are you going to? Okay, you don't have to answer that. But in L.A., we know where you're going. Or we know where at least you want to go inside. Because it's obvious where most of us would go. It's human nature to draw near to power, to draw near to prestige, to draw near to popularity. And this is why the Magi travel such far distances to get to Jerusalem, because in their minds, if the king of the Jews is born, this is the only place he could possibly be, at the center. And yet we read that when they get there, everyone's confused because he's not there. In fact, people there don't even know that a king has been born. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And so Herod calls together his group of wise men to try to figure out where this baby is, and these chief priests and teachers of the law, they immediately quote a prophecy from Micah 5.2 that says, this ruler of Israel will be born not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem of Judea, a small, obscure village nobody paid attention to, this is where the king would be found. And in case you're wondering where Bethlehem is, it's still a real place. It's still a place you can visit. A lot of times we read through these names in the Bible and we think these are fictitious cities, fictitious towns. This is a real place that still exists today. And if you're wondering where it is, it's in modern-day Gaza. It's in modern-day Gaza. I think it's very gut-wrenching, ironic, and profound that Gaza is the setting of the Christmas story. That the king of all kings is born not in a palace in the capital city amidst fanfare and celebration, but we read that the king is born in poverty amidst the cries of weeping mothers and fathers bearing their children. In many ways, not much has changed 
since that first Christmas day. I read an NPR article this week that said Christmas is canceled in Bethlehem this year because of the war in Gaza. No tree, no parades, no feasts, no festivities, no bells and whistles, no lights. The place Jesus was born is going to be silent tomorrow. I want you to think about that. But I wonder if Jesus came today. I wonder if this is still where he would choose to show up. I saw this illustration this week. I'll put it up on the screen. It choked me up. And it's by an artist, Kelly Lattimore. And it's entitled, Christ in the Rubble. And the idea is that if Jesus were born today, he would be born under the rubble. And I thought to myself, here we are, thousands of miles away, in this cushy auditorium, in the comforts of our own home with our friends and family, sitting around beautiful banquet tables, enjoying the bright lights and festivities. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. We should be absolutely grateful for the privilege we have to enjoy Christmas in this way. And yet, if there's anything the Christmas story tells us, it's that God doesn't always show up where we think he will. In fact, he often shows up where we least expect him to, in the mess of our lives, in the operating room, in the funeral home, in our grief, in our weeping, and in our doubt. You want to know where the king is? He's under the rubble. He's in Bethlehem. That's the first point. The second point is who gets to see this king? Who gets to see the king? And here's the thing I find very interesting when I read this passage. When Herod gathers the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're the ones who tell him the king is in Bethlehem. Like, these are people who understand and who've studied the Old Testament prophecy, so immediately they're pulling out Micah 5, and they're like, that's where he is. And you know what's very strange? None of them go to Bethlehem. Now, I read this story, and I'm like, you know exactly where Jesus is, you know where the king is born. Why aren't you going? Why aren't you immediately getting on the road and making your way to Bethlehem? And you realize there's a way you can know the word of God and never seek the God of the word. There's a way that you can know everything there is to know about scripture and yet never know the one scripture is pointing to. There are many in this room I know who've grown up in the church. You have all the right answers. You can, you can win Bible trivia. You can pull out verses left and right to, to speak to any of the many cultural issues happening at this moment. You know a lot about God, but the question is, do you really know him? Is he your supreme desire and pursuit and joy? The people who thought they knew everything there was to know about God, they don't have the humility to seek him when he shows up. One thing I realize, um, I haven't been a pastor that long, but you know what, one thing I realize? When you see moves of God happening in the church or happening in the world, you know who usually the first people to dismiss those moves of God are? Pastors and church leaders. It's very ironic, right? You see people like 
experiencing Jesus and the gospel for the first time. It's the pastors pull out verses left and right and say, I don't know if that's real. I don't know if that's God. It's very humbling. Do you want to know who gets to see the king? It's those who are looking for him. The magi are pagans from the east. They're outsiders. They're the last people you would think would be at the center of the Christmas story, and yet they're the ones who get to see Jesus. Why? It's not because of anything they've done. It's certainly not because of their pedigree. They're not even Jewish. They get to see the king because they seek the king. Jesus says, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For many of us, our problem is not that we don't know enough about God. It's that we don't care to seek him. We don't care to pursue him. To want to know his ways and his will. A detail I think we miss, right? Is once the Magi find out that the king is in Bethlehem. Like we often like, we, we, we read through this with our modern eyes and we think they just got in a car and they drove across town to Bethlehem. No. The distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem was 900 miles. Some scholars say it would have taken nine months to get there. They had to brave through treacherous weather. They did not know, like, exactly how this journey would turn out. It was a long, arduous journey. Meaning Jesus was not a newborn by the time they reached him, right? Like, sorry to burst your bubble. Like, we have so many misconceptions about the Christmas story. Like, we have the nativity scene, and it's always three wise men there in front of the nativity scene. By the time they get there, Jesus is, like, two years old. Okay, this is why we read in the text, he didn't visit them in the manger, he visited them at their house, right? Jesus was a little boy. And so we have to understand that often saying yes to Jesus, pursuing Jesus, is not like this light bulb that goes off, this epiphany where all of a sudden everything in your life makes sense. Like if you're here, you're checking out Christianity for the first time, you're new to the faith, you're skeptical. I think sometimes like you come to church Sunday, and you, you say like, pastor, convince me right now. Like, convince me that Jesus is real right now. Not realizing that Christianity is a journey. Some of us have been on this journey our entire lives. And, the, and, and often the older you get, the less you realize you know. And sometimes the more painful it can feel. This was no ordinary trip. These magi risked their lives to see the king. But why they did it? was because he was worth the journey. The king was worth the journey. I can tell you, who's, as someone who's been following Jesus since I was a child, um, yeah, I can tell you there are times where you will want to give up. I can tell you, you know, like my wife and I, we have, you know, because of my profession, there are certain implications of that profession that at times we're like, I don't know if this is worth it. You know, this journey feels really difficult and painful. But I can tell you as someone who's been journeying with God for many years now, that there are these moments when you will see that nothing compares to the joy of knowing him and being known by him. And so I just want to encourage, encourage everyone in this room, both Christian and non-Christian, to stay curious 
Keep asking questions because God will reveal himself to those who seek him. That's the second point. But finally, what happens in the king's presence? What happens in the king's presence? In this story, it's very interesting because you get two completely opposite responses to Jesus' birth. One of worship and one of fear, right? And they're both extremely dramatic responses, right? And it shows you the power of the king because he demands a response, right? There are certain things in life that absolutely demand a response. You can't just stay lukewarm. You can't encounter the king of all kings and be the same. And notice, I want you to notice what happens first to the magi. The magi, upon beholding baby Jesus, we read that they bow down and they worship him. And they immediately open up all of their treasures and lay the best of what they have at Jesus' feet. Meaning, worship is not just something we do on Sundays. It's not just something we do when we're gathered here together as a community. Worship is a way of life. It's emptying all of our treasures. It's surrendering our prized possessions, our money, our time, our dreams, our children to the king. The magi, if you notice, they're not calculating. They're not like, okay, we have probably another nine months back to where we came from. Like, what are we going to need for the journey back? They're not calculating what do we need to keep to still be comfortable and still preserve our way of life. It says they opened up the treasury and they said, give him everything we have. Because everything pales in comparison to who this king is. And only this king is worth our allegiance and our life. And this is what encountering the real Jesus will do to you. It will bring you to your knees in worship and it will open up your hands in surrender. And the gifts these magi give to Jesus are significant because they tell us who Jesus is And they tell us why he's come. And they tell us what he means to them. You know, as you know, today is Christmas Eve, and I know we're supposed to be celebrating Jesus' birthday, but today is also doubly special for our family because it's my son Jack's sixth birthday. He's a Christmas Eve baby. And he made me promise this morning that I would give him a shout-out in the sermon. So here it is, okay? He's not even here, but here it is. Here's the shout-out, okay? And I love birthdays because it's an amazing opportunity for you to honor and to celebrate the people in your life who've made such an impact on you. It's it's an opportunity for you to highlight all the things you love about a person. And when you think about the gifts that we give our son, they immediately will tell you who he is and what he likes, what he's into. He loves Pokemon. He's into stuffies. He loves food, right? But the gifts also signify what he means to us. All the joy and the laughter he brings our family, how he brightens up our lives. Like last night, my wife is up like at midnight putting up these streamers and putting up this sign, happy birthday, right? This sign that most likely our son's going to walk right by in the morning. And I'm like, why are you doing this? He's my boy. I love him so much. Not only does it signify who he is, but what he means to us. And in the same way, when these magi lay their gifts down at Jesus' feet, the gifts themselves speak to who Jesus is and what he means to them. Gold signifying royalty, helping us to remember that Jesus is the king over everything. 
frankincense, which was commonly used in temple worship to signify Jesus' divinity, to tell us Jesus alone is worthy of praise. And finally, myrrh, which on the surface is a very strange gift because myrrh was a perfume used to anoint dead bodies. Why would you bring a little two-year-old boy something used in death and burial? But you see, the Magi understood something about this baby. Not only was he a king, not only was he worthy of worship, but he came to earth with one primary objective, to die, to be nailed to a cross so that in his death, all who were willing to seek him would find forgiveness, hope, and healing in the rubble of their lives. But now not everyone in the story responds the way the Magi did. You also have King Herod. Some open up their hands, and some, like King Herod, clench their fists more tightly. You see, for someone like King Herod, who has worked his whole life to build his own kingdom, to take care of number one, to protect his self-interests, to make a name for himself, Jesus is a threat. Because if Jesus is king, that means Herod is not king. If Jesus is king, that means Herod doesn't have the final say. That means nothing actually belongs to Herod. And for someone like him, that's terrifying. And when we're afraid, it makes us do crazy things. It makes us manipulate people like Herod did. It makes us lie like Herod did. It makes us angry and lash out in violence like Herod did. It makes us hoard and control and abuse our power like Herod did. Because you see, saying yes to Jesus is allowing Jesus into your life and allowing him to rearrange everything. Past two weeks, uh, my wife was in Korea visiting my father-in-law. Um, so she left me at home slaving away with my two children. Um, but, you know, I gladly did it, you know, because I'm such a great husband and a great father, okay? But she will pay for it. You know, I will collect. Every, every spouse knows. We have a ledger. We have a secret ledger. And um, one of the things I realized, like, this is the longest my wife has been away from the family. And one of the things I realized, like, how much 12 years of marriage to her has, has changed me and has impacted me, right? And like, you know, I was still like, I was still doing everything that I was supposed to be doing, day three, day four, but day five comes around, I walk in the door and I'm like, you know what, I'm just gonna leave my jacket on the ground right over there, you know? You know, I'm like, I'm not gonna clean the table right now. We'll just, just leave it, you know? I'm gonna rewear my pants for the third time, you know, this week. You know, and you re I realized, like, oh, my gosh. Like, I saw a picture of, like, what your life without your spouse would look like. And I remember thinking at first, like, this is so hard. Like, it's like, this is not how I'm used to living, right? I was used to the bachelor life. I lived by myself. Everything was easy. Suddenly, I invite this other person into my life. Everything changes. She rearranges everything. And in many ways, this is what happens when you say yes to Jesus. Essentially, you're allowing him to confront everything about you. And this can be scary. Acknowledging Jesus as king means everything we have belongs to him. 
Our finances belong to him. Our futures belong to him. Our children belong to him. If Jesus is king, he's going to have something to say about everything. He's going to have something to say about that grudge we've been holding on to for a long time and can't seem to let go of. He's going to have something to say about the way we treat people, about how we spend our time and our money. It means we don't get to do things the way we want to anymore. It means it's not our way, our will, our timeline, our demand. It means our lives must be conformed to his life, to his plans, and to his purpose. If he is king, he is king over everything. But you see, this is the great promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus says, whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Meaning, if you're willing to trust this king, if you're willing to relinquish your life, to relinquish control and let Jesus be king of your heart. Yes, it's going to hurt sometimes. Yes, there are going to be things you don't understand. Yes, you might have to give up some things. Yes, you might not always get your way. People may fail you or betray you. But you can know that there is nothing you will lack in this life. Nothing. Because there is only one king who would lay down his life for you. And because of this, you can trust that though you may not have life the way you scripted it, that this season of your life may not be going according to your plan, but you can trust that you will have life abundantly. This morning, God is saying, stop putting your trust in these counterfeit rulers and in these false kingdoms. Let me be king of your heart. Let me carry the weight of your life on my shoulders. Let me show you life as it was meant to be lived. So the question for all of us this morning on this Christmas Eve is this. How will you respond to this king, the king of all kings? Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, Jesus is king, and the king has been born, and the king has come. The big question is, what will you do in the king's presence? Will you respond like Herod? and refuse to acknowledge his lordship and continue to build your own kingdoms? Or will you respond like the Magi, with awe and wonder and worship? Will you seek Jesus and see him for who he really is? Let's pray. I want to give us a moment uh, to respond to this word. And on this Christmas Eve, I want you to ask yourself this question. Where are you still trying to be king or queen over your own life? What are the areas of your life um, in which you're allowing your fear and insecurity dictate your decisions and your mood and your view of other people? Whatever those areas are, I want us to bring up, bring those honestly to Jesus and lay them down at his feet. That we would ask the Spirit to help us relinquish control, relinquish the belief that it is our responsibility to sustain our lives, 
that in this moment we would take a moment to surrender to King Jesus and to throw ourselves again on his grace that is sufficient for us. Let's just take a moment to do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are Christ under the rubble. We thank you that you have come to be with us, not uh, just on the mountaintops, but you have come to be with us in the valleys of our lives, in the darkness, in our weeping, in our doubt, and in our uncertainty. And you have given us a hope this Christmas day that when you came into the world, you truly came as Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. This morning, as we look forward to Christmas, uh, celebrating Christmas tomorrow, in the midst of all the things that distract us, in the midst of all the things that avert our attention away from the true meaning of this day, we pray that in this holy moment, you would remind us and let the weight of your birth set on our hearts. that we would remember who you are and why you came, and that that would give us such a joy that wells up on the inside of us. We thank you, Lord, for this word. We thank you for the hope of Christmas. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.